Hi, this is Deborah May. You may remember me from my performances on Deep Space Nine and Voyager, and you are listening to Trek Untold. Welcome back to Trek Untold, a Star Trek-inspired podcast that goes beyond the stars. I'm your host, Matthew Kaplowitz. It's not often that one has the chance to talk to a beauty pageant queen, let alone one who went on to appear twice in Star Trek. But that's who we're chatting with today, because our guest is Deborah May. Deborah, or as she was known in the beauty pageant circuit as Debbie May, appeared twice in Star Trek. The first time was the Deep Space Nine episode Sanctuary from Season 2. And I gotta tell you, that episode is one of the most haunting episodes of DS9. And we're talking about a show that's had plenty of things that really stuck with you. When I think about Deep Space Nine, I think about the Dominion War and all the big ship battles and so many great episodes like In the Pale Moonlight or The Visitor. But there's so many others that are just as good and are really overshadowed by some of those other big ones I just mentioned. I think a lot about this episode, Sanctuary. And while I do call it one of my favorites, it's also a tough one to think about because it's just so grim, so uncomfortable. And perhaps it's so real that it just takes a lot of my energy to watch it. But it's such a really strong episode that demands a rewatch, especially before listening to this week's episode. She appeared a few years later in the third season Voyager episode, Favorite Son, where she played Lyris, the matriarch of an alien society that Harry Kim may or may not be a part of. It's a much more lighthearted episode by comparison, and a fun one for Garrett Wang, who has the honor of being around a lot of lovely ladies who all want a piece of his sumptuous life force. Beyond Trek, Deborah's had a long career in soap operas and dramas, including Guiding Light, St. Elsewhere, ER, Murder One, L.A. Law, Days of Our Lives, and plenty of other shows, as well as sitcoms like Murphy Brown, The Larry Sanders Show, Seinfeld, Grounded for Life, and Malcolm in the Middle, just to name a handful. But most recently, you may remember her as Natanya on The Walking Dead, and I'm sure by the end of this episode, you're going to want to revisit some of her work beyond Trek. Before we begin this episode, I'd like to remind you to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Trek Untold. One word, no spaces. You can also support our show by visiting patreon.com slash trekuntold. If you're already following us or offering your support in any way, thank you for your help. Most of all, please make sure to subscribe to this podcast and leave a rating and review wherever it is that you're listening to it. This helps more people find us and hear the show. And I'd also like to make a quick shout out to our friends at Triple Fiction Productions, who make some great 3D printed Star Trek inspired products for toys and people. But you're going to hear more about them a little bit later. Now, without further ado, let's beam up this week's guest. Computer, access interview file. Affirmative. Initiating program. Welcome back to Trek Untold. And now joining us on the other side of the line, Deborah May. Deborah, how's it going today? It's gone very well in these strange, surreal times. A little Star Trekian, uh, like I remember. <laughs> yeah, you know, I would say so. It reminds me of a few episodes, uh, but that's a whole other episode entirely. But uh, you yeah. yourself have appeared in two episodes of Star Trek, but of course you've done so much other things besides that. We're going to talk about a few of those things. But again, because this is a Star Trek-centric show, uh, I have to ask the question I ask all of our guests when they first appear, uh, and that's, what is your earliest memory of Star Trek? Oh, wow. Well, certainly with uh, William Shatner, I believe. He was the original on Star Trek. Is that correct? Yep, that's correct. And I remember watching it and looking forward to it. Before you could tape things and then watch them uh, in a row. So we'd have to wait every week. And that was always a drag. 
Now, you grew up in Indiana, correct? That's correct, right in the heartland of Indiana, midway between Chicago and Indianapolis, 100 miles on either side, and nearest to Lafayette, Indiana, where Purdue University is, although I went to Indiana University. And uh, it's a town of 1,000 people, a town called Remington. So tell us a little bit about uh, growing up there. Who were your parents? What did they do? And what led you towards, uh, well, not acting just yet, but I guess initially towards modeling? Well, my father, Hollis E. May, the E was for Earhart. His mother loved Amelia Earhart, and so she wanted to name her son Earhart. And he got Hollis instead, so we're grateful for that. And he married my mother, Angeline. Her maiden name was Gutwein. Her family was from Germany. And uh, my father's family was several generations right there in Indiana. My mom was born in in the United States, but her parents were not. They were born in Germany. And uh, I am one of four children. I I had an older brother whom, unfortunately, I lost way too early. Um, My brother, Jeffrey, and then my older sister, Angela, and then my little sister, Stephanie, who lives in Switzerland with her husband, who's a doctor. But they come here to Florida. Uh, twice a year where they have a home. And uh, they're there right now, as a matter of fact. I wonder if they'll get back in May to Switzerland. We'll see. Uh, but it was a great place to grow up. And because it was so small, if you wanted to excel in anything and you tried, you could almost always be put in the limelight. And we were all very musical, Matthew and my family. We all sang and played the piano. My brother had by far the best voice. My sister's an opera singer. As I said, she's in Switzerland and she teaches quite a bit now. And um, so I was in uh, talent shows and beauty pageants growing up. Um, I enjoyed that because I liked performing so much. Um, I Let's see, when I went to Indiana University, I wanted to go into pre-med. I decided that I was destined to be a doctor, which is kind of, uh, I don't know how much time we have. I may go in far too much depth, so stop me if I get carried away. But We got plenty of time. The more, the better. Oh, good. I wanted to be a surgeon. Uh, and I thought, well, they call the uh, the area where you operate, uh, it's uh, like a amphitheater. Uh, and so it sort of made sense. Well, I lasted a year in music and uh, um, as my minor and zoology as my major at Indiana University. I then became Miss Indiana University and went to the Miss Indiana pageant where I was, uh, let's see, I won both preliminaries in swimsuit and talent. So I thought, well, this is going to be great. And then I came in runner-up that first year. The second year, my dad, who was always encouraging me, had me get my pilot's license when I was 17. And uh, um, and so he encouraged me to go back to the Miss Indiana pageant, which I did. And the same scenario exactly. I won my preliminary and swimsuit and talent, and I was runner-up the second year. Then he found another... Uh, contest for me to be in. I was in a contest basically for all the losers, the runners-up. It was called the Miss Sweetheart uh, Corn Festival somewhere in Illinois. I did that. I was a runner-up there and Miss Congeniality. And then my father found another pageant for me to be in. You can see how I was spending my time. (laughs) And we flew to all these places uh, in his uh, Piper. uh, It was a uh, low-wing single-engine aircraft. And so I got a lot of flight time in. And so he found another pageant for me to be in. It was called the Miss International Banana Princess pageant. It was sponsored by Colonel Tom Parker, who discovered way back when Elvis uh, Elvis Presley. 
So I went to that pageant and I actually won that one. And they sent me to Ecuador as a goodwill ambassador for Cabana Fruits. And mostly I didn't have to carry a bunch of bananas around because the other gal that was there with me, the Pearl of the Pacific, she had to throw bananas off her float. <laughs> and so that that was a, an interesting uh, trip to fly to, to Ecuador. We didn't fly the small plane there. I took a commercial airline there. And then um, came back and I was in the Miss America pageant the next year because I went back to Miss Indiana as Miss Indianapolis. And my mother wanted me to stop all this nonsense, but my dad was just convinced that I was going to win. So I think they finally thought, oh, gosh, she's only 20 years old. She can do this till she's 28. We might as well give it to her. So I won Miss Indiana. I went to the Miss America pageant. Um, I was grand talent winner, which is another way of saying you were the most talented of the people who were not uh, part of the finalists. Uh, but I got great scholarship money from that, and I enjoyed being Miss Indiana. And I drove new cars all over the state, and the finest by roads and back roads that Indiana has to offer. And then I went to San Francisco to visit my older sister, Angela, who'd moved there. And I found out about the American Conservatory Theater. And so on a whim, I auditioned for it. Uh, I had been uh, student teaching as part of getting my degree. And so I had several uh, monologues that I could uh, rely on. And so I did that and I got in the conservatory. And the Miss America pageant scholarship money was what paid for all of that. That was a big help. That and the money I had made doing special appearances in Indiana. So I did that for a year. And then I was on my way to New York to do musicals. That's what I decided I wanted to do. And uh, William Ball, who was the uh, creator and artistic director at ACT in San Francisco, asked me to be a member of the company. So I did. And I stayed there for seven seasons, I believe. Then I went to New York. In the meantime, I'd done theater up and down the coast at Pacific Conservatory Performing Arts and the Old Globe Theater in San Diego. And I went to New York and um, was on The Guiding Light and did some television shows. And um, I'm getting my way back to uh, Star Trek. But it takes If I do the whole story, I'll be here for four hours. But um, I was able to come back to uh, California, to the Old Globe Theater. And uh, um, I auditioned for and was cast in a play called As You Like It. And the young man playing opposite me as Orlando turned out to be George DeLoyo. So that worked very well. We got married 47 times on stage as uh, Rosalind and Orlando. And then uh, I went back to New York, back to the soap opera. They made me such a good offer. I couldn't refuse it. And George stayed out here. And then we came back to ACT and we did a play there. And he asked me to marry him the following year. So we did that. So then that puts me in Los Angeles and auditioning for and getting some things uh, various things in television and film. So you're now involved in the acting world. Uh, I'd like to just ask at this point, you know, as you're coming up in the world, uh, who would you say has helped or influenced you the most in your acting abilities as your career continued? Oh, that's a very good question. Well, William Ball had a great deal uh, uh, to do with uh, my progression in acting uh, from ACT. I got such great training and he continued because it was a conservatory. You were, a student and an actor at the same time. So we took classes in ballet and movement and scansion and, and improv work. And um, 
and you did things that you normally wouldn't be able to do. Couple that with Donovan Marley's Pacific Conservatory of Performing Arts, which was in Solvang and Santa Maria, California. And there I was an artistic um, fellow, I guess you'd call me, a, a guest artist. And I got to do roles there that I never would have been cast in, I don't think commercially. I could basically play whatever I wanted from Hedda Gabler to the unthankful Molly Brown. And we opened the theater in Solvang, California, in the mid to late 70s, I believe it was. And uh, so that was a great experience. They were very influential. Also, I would say, um, well, some of the actors that I worked with at ACT, Peter Donat, whom we lost not very long ago. And I knew Rene Aubergeois, whom I've also uh, uh, lost his friendship recently. And watching them and working in that close proximity was very beneficial. I had a wonderful agent when I went to New York. Um, his name was Milt Goldman. Goldman, yes, and uh, um, with ICM, and he introduced me to terrific uh, actors and and uh, um, agents, and uh, was a great. Uh, um, he was a conveyor of my talents, if you will. And then there's Jack O'Brien at the Old Globe Theater, and Sweet Craig Knoll of the Old Globe Theater. He uh, was the artistic director, and then Jack succeeded him. They all played a very important part in uh, in my education. And then I've had so many wonderful directors um, from uh, Mr. Jackson from Milwaukee Rep to, well, Jack and Bill and Alan Fletcher was a fantastic director. All these people uh, conspired to help me uh, in many great ways. So along the way with all these people giving you these great instructions and feedback, uh, you went on to have a very deep resume of some very acclaimed shows. You've appeared on Falcon Crest, a recurring role in St. Elsewhere, L.A. Law, Murphy yeah. Brown, Days of Our Lives, Remington Steel. I can go on and on here, but uh, I want to ask you in particular about one role that I thought uh, was a really great display of your abilities, uh, and that was uh, when you appeared with Patty Duke in Call of Anna, which was oh, was, call me Anna, yeah, yeah which was an autobiographical made-for-TV movie where you played Ethel Ross, who was one half yeah. of uh, Patty Duke's original management team. Uh, can you tell us about that experience of working on that movie? Yeah. Uh, it was with Howard Hessman, I believe. He played uh, the my husband, the manager, and I came to really appreciate uh, Patty, or Anna, as she wanted to be called. Um, she's a great talent, great mind, and uh, I was not a very sympathetic character, I have to say. It was pretty awful, <laughs> uh, allowing things to happen that did happen, but um, I enjoyed the work very much, and uh, I liked the, the location of it. It was... Uh, experience i had a, a baby that i was nursing at the time and had the baby on the set and i remember all that very well uh it was a great experience i, I wanted to make mention of one more person whom i thought helped me so much when you mentioned saint elsewhere yeah sure go ahead my husband and i played a married couple on saint elsewhere um trying to have a baby and uh that was this the series uh, as it played out and People Magazine came and interviewed us, and we were, in fact, trying to have a baby in real life and on the show concurrently. Well, I got pregnant in real life, and it just <laughs> blew the storyline completely because <laughs> she couldn't get pregnant on St. Elsewhere. And I remember uh, uh, Ed, oh, God, I can't remember his last name. I, my mind's a sieve. Uh, but he was such a wonderful uh, actor, so good on St. Elsewhere, and such a good actor at ACT, too. I remember working with him in House of Blue Leaves and a couple of other plays. 
but uh, anyway, that's uh, um, that's my memory of Call Me Anna. I enjoyed that very much, and that's been quite a while ago. Now, there is one other show uh, I want to talk to you about before we jump into Trek, uh, and that's something that our listeners know I'm a big fan of, and that's the Golden Girls. And you were on the episode oh, yeah. uh, Before and After. You played one of Rose's new roommates after she left the house. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just love hearing stories about working with all those ladies. Yeah. Um, can you just tell me what it was like working, uh, especially in that case, with Betty White and just being on the set of Golden Girls? Oh, it was fantastic. It was terrific. And I had uh, a baby with me at that time, and my mother-in-law came from uh, Salt Lake City to watch uh, Alexandra, I think it was. Uh, and the ladies all came into the my dressing room, and uh, Be- Betty White is one of the most charming, lovable people, and so vital and vibrations and vivacious. I mean, look at her. She's just remarkable. And uh, I, I felt like I was an honored company to be with them. What do you remember most about being on that set? Uh, Mary Wicks. Uh, who was at ACT, uh, came to the set. She was friends with all of them and, and uh, uh, sat, and I could hear her laughing uh, out in the in the audience. Yeah, it, it was just a, a grand experience. I felt like I had stepped back in time, and I was getting to experience things that, that marched across decades, and I got to be part of it. I, oh, yeah, breaking up? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'm quite good at, at uh, holding character, but they are so funny, and they ad lib quite a lot. Yes, I do remember that. Uh, and I remember just before I went on um, to enter um, Betty White's uh, apartment, uh, one of the stagehands said, the ladies have said that you're a very handsome young woman. I just <laughs> love the fact that they used the word handsome. <laughs> it's a very B. Arthur word, I think. Yes, exactly. Yeah, just great, great voices, great production. All right, so Deborah, we've come now to 1993, where you make your first appearance in a Star Trek series, and that's in the second season episode of Deep Space Nine, Sanctuary. And uh, I, I've got to tell you, Deborah, this is actually one of my favorite episodes ever, especially from the early seasons. Uh, it's one that's really stuck with me. Yeah, it's stuck on me, too. <laughs> <laughs> so in this Doing episode, the makeup. Oh, yeah, we'll talk about that for sure. Um, so in this episode, yeah. you play Hanik, a Screen refugee who, as the title implies this episode, takes Sanctuary in Deep Space Nine, and ultimately becomes an ambassador for a people who are seeking a new world to move their entire population to. So uh, I'd like to start at the beginning, and uh, can you tell us about how you got cast into this role of Hanik? Well, I auditioned for it, and if memory serves, which it doesn't always, I think I had to do a callback audition for it. But um, I guess I just had the stature and, and the uh, uh, qualities that they felt they needed in this. There was a farming uh, community. We were farmers. We were looking for a place through a deep hole, a black hole, to, uh, as you say, start uh, a new existence, a new life. Um, but uh, I can't remember too much about the audition, except the, I did get called back, which was unusual. I think they must have been seeing a lot of people. That's, I'm sure, is the case. And uh, so they called back uh, the several that they thought they might use, and I was fortunate enough to be chosen. So this episode remains a very topical one to this day as it deals with immigration and refugees. It's a very deep, kind of grim also uh, episode. Uh, did you have any thoughts about the script and its political content when you first read it? Well, I liked particularly that we looked different and that we uh, repulsed people. They didn't want to be around us. We had, if you can, I'm sure you remember, Matthew, you're an expert at this, but we had uh, um, like scaly skin and um, they just, they 
felt like who knows what diseases I might be getting from that person. Things that we are are having to not deal with, but uh, what's going on politically, that idea that people coming from a place other than where you are, they might be something or someone that uh, can contaminate us. We don't know who they are, uh, what they've done or what they've been, so to speak. But I remember putting the makeup on. It took almost three hours to get into makeup. And then to get out of the makeup was uh, um, kind of an arduous task unto itself. You had to stand and have the water course over your face. Um, and it created a bubble, a balloon of water finally underneath the latex. And the it was actually gravel. They used gravel and latex. And then you would peel it down. And you had to be careful because you did begin to think you were suffocating uh, if you're claustrophobic. And I remember one sweet uh, older woman uh, was claustrophobic and she and I were taking our uh, makeup off in the shower together, the communal shower. And she, I had to get help for because it, she really thought that she was going to drown uh, because it took so long. And if I'm not mistaken, it had to soak for like 20 minutes before you peeled it off. So it was one of the harder shows I ever had to do, but I, I really, really loved it. And I loved the, um, um, I love the idea of uh, being helped out and finding another civilization, another place to go. Yeah, as you mentioned, the screens had that very weird pimply makeup uh, and, and yeah. is a little bit repulsive. Uh, and I think it's also just a great <laughs> allegory to the content of the script as well, which is, again, just about what happens when you have these foreign people coming and trying to come into your home, essentially. Mm -hmm. Exactly, exactly right. And I was at a Star Trek convention not too long ago, and interestingly enough, that was the picture that most of the people wanted to have me sign. Anik. So can you describe the set of that episode for us and the type of shooting environment that it was? Was it different from other shows that you worked on? When you're in the set itself, you, you do feel like you're in a, a sanctified space, an air, airship. But it was done on a soundstage, as they all are. So I don't re really remember feeling um, out of place or awkward um, about it at all it um it was extremely efficient well done and in timely fashion uh, not all shows are, are that move that quickly it moves very quickly if memory serves me now this episode was directed by a veteran star trek director les lando uh do you remember working with him and the direction he gave you for this character mm -hmm, yes uh the only thing i can really remember about Mr. Lando, is that he uh, wanted it to be very real and not arch. Um, my character, you know, she had to do a lot of defending, but, um, and she was powerful, but he wanted her to, that you could see um, humanity and empathy in her. Uh, he was a very good director. I liked him a lot. And your role as Hanik, uh, I'd like to compliment you. It's a very subtle, nuanced, complex character, and you did a beautiful job uh, portraying her. Thank you. Thank you very much. So in this episode, you're predominantly paired with scenes with Nana Visitor. And I think you two had some really great chemistry on set. Oh, uh, Nana Visitor. Do what you yes. guys did. Yes. She's wonderful. Yeah. How did you like working with her? Oh, I loved it. She's a beautiful, beautiful young woman. And uh, really good with her lines. I remember that. She, I don't think she ever flubbed the line once. I liked working working with her very much. I would like to have worked again with her. Did you find that you guys had a really great back and forth as well? Mm -hmm. Yes, we did. Very much so. I, I think uh, we had rapport, as we say in the business. 
They also mentioned earlier that you had a, uh, you were, had a friendship with Rene, uh, and he plays, obviously, Odo mm-hmm. on Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Uh, so what was it like being able to work alongside him and him, especially with all the heavy prosthetics that he's wearing for this episode? Exactly. Uh, he's he's uh, was such a wonderful actor, and uh, I knew Rene and his wife, Judith, well, and it was just an honor to be on the set with him. I'd seen so much of his work at ACT and uh, um, uh, so admired him and... and uh, uh, took great uh, um, comfort in the fact that that he was uh, not only friendly, talented, but helpful as well. Now, when you think about this episode, is there a memory that may stand out the most for you during filming? <laughs> the woman almost drowning in the shower is the memory that stands out regarding the episode. Besides that traumatic experience, because yeah, yeah. I think now we're, we're all going to be able to not forget that one. <laughs> exactly. I can't say that there was one moment that just, uh, uh, you probably could remember better than I, but just... Uh, electrified me i just liked the whole experience shooting of it It was something that i'd never done before and and i enjoyed uh the latex and the gravel and the the whole look of it now when this episode first aired did you actually watch it on tv oh i think so yes yes i believe i did and i was horrified yeah what what horrified you about it oh how awful i looked (laughs) but if the acting's all right it doesn't matter what you look like (laughs) yeah and i think the acting was amazing uh when you take a role like this, especially, I'm just kind of curious because there is so much nuance to this. And even, uh, and I don't know if you remember in the first, maybe first act of the episode, uh, you don't really actually communicate because you're speaking a different language and you had to communicate oh, yes. non-verbally. Yes. Um, so I, I just, I just like to know, how do you prepare for that kind of role? What do you do to mentally step into this character who has, she's basically a farmer becoming an ambassador. Yeah. Uh, it's a, it's a lot of complex change that happens. What do you do to, become that character she I, I and i think i have a copy of this somewhere i wish i'd watch it so i could remember better matthew but that's right you just uh enlightened me it was interesting i was thinking that i was very boring and that nothing was happening and uh, the director uh assured me that that wasn't the case and uh, um and as i said it moved very fluidly fluidly and efficiently so uh, i wasn't left with too much time on my hands to say god did that work or did that work well or poorly and the director was um, just excellent in saying, we've got exactly what we need, we're moving on. And I just came to trust him completely. Trek Untold will return momentarily. Trek Untold is brought to you by Triple Fiction Productions. If you're a Star Trek cosplayer looking for props or a toy collector looking to spice up your shelves, Triple Fiction Productions has you covered. Triple Fiction Productions produces affordable and unique 3D-printed Trek-inspired products from the original series, Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise, and the movies. You can expect the same amount of care and attention to detail in any of the items in their catalog, whether it's a prop replica for use in a fan film, or a part of a cosplay, or accessories and playsets for figures from Playmates, Migos, or Diamond Select. Own your very own tricorder or phaser rifle with working lights, the bridge of the Enterprise E for your Playmates figures, or any other item from countless species and ships from the Star Trek universe. All products are 3D printed in the USA and are constantly evolving and improving based on fan feedback. To learn more about their products, visit them at triple-fictionproductions.net or on Facebook at facebook.com slash triplefictionproductions. Triple Fiction Productions taking Star Trek where no 3D printer has gone before.
Wrestling is on two levels right now. Either you all in and having a good time with what's going on and enjoying the body slams, headlocks, submissions, and the tope suicidas, or you're just pissed the hell off of what's going on in the wrestling landscape. What kind of wrestling podcast has the same kind of dilemmas? Your guys here at Turnbuckle Tabloid. Jada Rest Santee and Olski is here to bring to you the ridiculousness, the buffoonery, the nonsense, and all that that is just straight wrestling. We're here with that opinionated New York swag and the ridiculousness that goes along with it. Get us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play Music, Google Podcasts, wherever you get podcasts. Turnbuckle Tabloid, you don't want to miss it. And we're here every week, unlike some wrestling promotions. Laters. We now return to Trek Untold. So four years after this appearance on Deep Space Nine, you followed it up with a role on Star Trek Voyager in the season three episode, Favorite Son. And there you played Lyris, who is the matriarch of the Teresians, uh, an alien species that has a, a secret to hide. So what did you think of this role when you first heard this was the character you would be portraying? Oh, I just thought it was so bizarre. And I had Matthew actually tested for the part that my friend Kate Mulgrew um, took, which was the commander. And I, oh, I so wanted it. But she was perfect in that part. I thought that the, the character, I liked the fact that I, they tried to make me look as good as possible so that was the opposite of the first character i played <laughs> and so i, I particularly like that i i like that and and i like the the notion of this uh, superior female a uh, race um well not a race but uh, civilization hardly civilized um needing this quality from men uh, so they could uh, continue on i thought it was an interesting interesting concept and I was lucky and glad to do it. This wouldn't be the last time you played a character like that who's this strong head of a female society, but we're <laughs> going to come back to that. Yeah. <laughs> Since you brought it up, I would like to ask a little bit more about uh, Kate Mulgrew and mm-hmm. uh, auditioning for the role of Captain Janeway, because you mentioned it. I have to ask you right now about this. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that, like when you were auditioning to initially become Captain Janeway, I guess? Well, if memory serves me, um, Matthew, it was... Um, it was a, a very good audition, and I uh, went back, I think, twice. And they originally gave the part to uh, another woman, and I'm trying to remember who it was. Um, and she didn't do it for very long because she was a film actress, and I could see her face. And she's, uh, well, she's French, or well, Kate would. Yeah, it's on the tip. Of my, I know the name, but I can't remember it either. You right know now. what I mean? Yeah. And uh, I don't know how many episodes she did, and then. Uh, um, then Kate was uh, um, next in line, um, and I thought she did an excellent job. It's back to Favorite Son now. I heard that this episode had a lot of rewrites to it. Do you remember anything about script changes happening while you were working this part? Oh, golly. You know, I can't remember specifically a, a lot of it happening to my character, and I think if it were inundated with script changes, I would remember that because I do remember um, some of them, but I don't think that it was overwhelming. Um, at least it didn't bother me. And, and I'm what we call a quick study. So uh, I kind of like the challenge of having to new learn learn new things in a constricted period of time. Yeah, I think most of the changes were due to uh, Garrett Wang's character of Kim. Um, so I guess, I guess that wouldn't have affected you as <laughs> right. much. But yeah, that's much what I know, what I've heard from the inside looking in. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. I remember him. Yeah, he's a very uh, functional character in that storyline, to yes. say the least. <laughs> yes. So tell us a little bit about shooting this episode, because I heard that this one had a really drawn-out shooting schedule because it was happening around the holidays. Do you remember any of that? 
you know, I can't say that, that I remember it being too drawn out. I was enjoying it so much. Um, but because of the script changes and, and the holidays, they, they did go uh, over, I think. It's one of the longer shoots I'd been on. Yeah. So this episode was directed by Marvin Rush, who, aside from directing mm-hmm. several episodes of other Trek series, was also uh, director of photography on four of the different Star Trek series. So I imagine he brought with him right. kind of a different vision. Uh, what do you remember about working with Marvin? Oh, just that he was uh, extraordinary uh, in the interesting angles that he shot and that he wanted. And uh, and he came in so well prepared. He knew what he wanted and he got it every time. Well, I'm starting to remember all this now. This is great, Matthew. Thank you. <laughs> That's good. That's what we want to happen. <laughs> so we're talking about Marvin uh, and, him, and him being a DP in the past. I imagine he looks at the show differently than, let's say, uh, Lester would have. So from your point of view, was he as focused on the actors as much as he was, let's say, camera angles and setting up scene visually? If memory serves me, Matthew, he was very uh, focused on, on the actors through the uh, the eye of the camera. He just knew the look he wanted. And I found that uh, that DPs who move on into directing are particularly good with actors because it's like they have an intimacy uh, looking through the lens. and um, and that translates into their direction. Now, aside from, obviously, Kate Mulgrew, Tim Russ, and Garrett Wang uh, in this episode, you also shared some screen time with Patrick Fabian, uh, who's gone on to have a major role in Better Call Saul as Howard Hamlin. Do you remember anything about uh, your time on set with him? I can't quite recall, uh, except uh, we laughed a lot. But uh, it, it was just such a wonderful ensemble cast. Was it a very jovial set while it was being filmed? Yes. As a matter of fact, it was. Yeah, everybody, uh, when you're doing a good show, a great show, and, and you're part of it, um, it tends to make everybody just feel better. And it was such a good group of people. Uh, we all enjoyed each other's company a lot. I can't say, in all honesty, I've had too many bad situations on sets ever. Either just lucky or kismet, I'm not sure. <laughs> Well, it's good to hear, but I am curious uh, if there was a different feeling while you're on Deep Space Nine. I've heard that that set was often a little bit more serious, uh, and especially for the episode that you're doing here, it's a much more serious kind of set. Yeah, Deep Space over um, over uh, Voyager, you're saying? Yes. Yeah, I think that's true, and it was earlier, too. I think it was much more relaxed. Voyager was more relaxed, a little more relaxed, yeah. So you also had the luck of being able to work with two captains, and Avery Brooks, as you mentioned, and Kate Mulgrew. Mm-hmm. What would you say was the biggest differences between those two actors? <laughs> One was a tall black man, and the other was a tiny little Irish spice sprite. <laughs> <laughs> That's no, very I true. Say, I would say, um, gosh, this is tricky. This is hard to say the difference. They both were you know, commanders of the ship and in solid command. Uh, Avery is very um, uh, off-camera, more soft-spoken and uh, um, uh, jovial. I, I enjoyed my time with him a lot. I really thought I'd love to work with this actor again. And Kate, I knew, uh, and she's uh, very serious about her work and and also knows exactly what she wants and uh, uh, usually gets it from her own work and from other, other people's work as well. Now, when you filmed this episode, was Kate aware that you were also in the running for her part originally? Oh, I think I told her, yeah. Yeah, I think I told her. And what'd she say about that? Oh, she laughed. She said they should have cast you. <laughs> Something to that effect. Yeah. 
So after your time in Star Trek, you went on to do plenty of other things. You had uh, appearances on the Larry Sanders show, uh, ER for several years, mm-hmm. uh, as well as a spot on the hit HBO miniseries From the Earth to the Moon, which had a lot of other track actors in it. Yeah. But uh, I'd like to ask you about one of the more recent shows you've done, and that's The Walking Dead on AMC. Right. And in that series, you played Natanya, who is the leader of Oceanside. Uh, you got to do a lot of scenes yeah. with Alana Masterson, Sidney Park. Uh, so I was just curious, what was it like working on The Walking Dead? Uh, I enjoyed it. A lot. For one thing, I didn't have to get all gussied up. And I mean, I tried to look better than they wanted me to look, but it was pretty hard <laughs> because you're <laughs> living out there, you know, in an apocalyptic time frame. Um, but uh, I liked so much working with Alana. She had a baby at that time. And uh, um, it was just a good environment, a good women to work with. And I enjoyed that part so much. And we were in Peachtree, Alabama. I think it was Alabama or was it Georgia? I always get, we flew into Atlanta, Georgia. Peachtree is south, about an hour, two hours south. And I would go running every morning or when I had time off. And I remember I was running along um, an overpass and some boys on a, um, uh, like a moped or triped uh, golf cart sort of thing came down the um, pedestrian lane and I jumped back to get out of their way and I impaled my leg I mean I'm looking at the scar now I impaled my leg on one of the um, railings and so I laughingly call this leg the the walking dead limb (laughs) (laughs) so I imagine that that show is very different from other sets because uh, a lot of it is outdoors and uh, for lack of a better word rustic very rustic very rustic all outdoors I mean you take great care of you but you have to go out to where the set is, and and it can be quite remote. Yeah, how did it feel working on such remote sets, uh, especially in this kind of show that is really obviously very creepy, supposed to be a very scary, dark kind of show? Mm-hmm. Uh, how, how did that reflect in what you did on the episode? Well, I liked it. I mean, I liked the show so much. Uh, and, of course, the makeup is incredible. And you see these guys coming around the corner eating a ham sandwich with all of that. <laughs> oh, uh, it, it was startling in that regard. I was just so glad I wasn't a zombie, and I thought, oh, I hope I don't end up as one as well. And again, coming back to the character you play in Deep Space Nine and also in uh, mm-hmm. Voyager, again, these are both like very commanding roles of female characters who are essentially in very female-dominated societies. I find it interesting that you keep getting cast in those roles as we talk about this <laughs> tonight in this episode. Yeah, um, did yeah you... that's exactly right. So for you doing these kinds of roles, I mean, how does it feel to be the strong female character and Again, specifically in the Walking Dead universe, this strong female character in a post-apocalyptic universe. Mm-hmm. It feels great. It's a thing that I'm drawn to. I mean, I'm a tall, blonde woman, and as B and Betty said, she's a handsome young woman. <laughs> um, but um, and I'm classically trained in the theater and uh, uh, musically as well, so it gives me a chance to use my voice and stage presence. Um, if you're five foot nine and, and, uh, uh, you kind of look a little bit like Marlena Dietrich used to look anyway. Um, uh, I, I look forward to parts like that. They're, they're my favorite thing to do. I don't like, I mean, it's good to do all sorts of parts and passive parts, uh, certainly are important, but, um, uh, these are my favorite, favorite kinds of parts, strong, independent women who feel like they're doing something for those that can't do it for themselves. 
Yeah, and I have to say, again, you just bring a lot of commanding presence to it, and it feels very real when you take on these roles. Well, thank you, Matthew. Gee, I've got to see you at one of these conventions sometime. I hope I can get to meet you at one of these two, yeah. Yeah. So on that topic of these strong leading ladies, were there any women in your life that you think influenced how you play those characters? Well, my mother was a very strong uh, woman. She uh, was a a housewife and and raised four children, but she had uh, great depth and faith. And and, uh, um, I could say even at times she was opinionated. Um, As far as strong leading women, I know um, Michael, uh, Peter Donat's first wife, uh, Michael, was uh, uh, she was on the Waltons, if you remember her. And she was, I took some classes with her when I first came to ACT, and she was uh, a lovely woman and very, uh, uh, very capable of playing those strong, independent women. And uh, I appreciated her work. Uh, a dramaturge by the name of Diana Maddox uh, was a big influence in my career. I liked working with her. She taught us scansion and uh, basically how to do Shakespeare. And then Marion Walters was another extraordinary actress that I loved working with at ACT. And she's the one that got me such a wonderful agent at ICM when I first went to New York. She called and introduced me and and uh, she had a great influence on me. Um, trying to think if there are other, I'm sure I'm leaving somebody out that made such an impression on me. If I think of it, I'll let you know. Now, just one last question about the Walking Dead character that you played. Mm-hmm. And of course, this being The Walking Dead, uh, you know, not a lot of folks come out of this in one piece. And your character, unfortunately, yeah, yeah, well, not so much. So what did you think of the ultimate fate of Natanya and how it all played out? Well, I was surprised. And I was also surprised that they hadn't even come back to to the set for the last one because I literally had that one shot, no pun intended. And I said, you could you could just put me in front of a blue screen here in California. But because of the cohesion of the show. They wanted it all to come together. And I remember they had um, um, an actress. She was tall like I was. uh, And she was a stunt uh, person. And they wanted her to do the fall. And I said, why? I think I can handle this. I can do this fall. And I had to talk them into letting me do it. Because it was just, you got a mistaken identity and you got shot and you went down. And and then there was the reveal of, of who had been shot, which I think was a pretty good effect pretty scary yeah i agree and i'm now even more impressed the fact that you just took your own fall as well yeah yeah it's very funny so deborah throughout your career what do you think was the most valuable acting lesson that you've learned that you can share with our listeners that they can use if they're interested in becoming an actor or an actress one don't take yourself too seriously in the beginning i think i did advantages and disadvantages come in ebb and flow and uh, you can let uh, a disappointment or what you consider is a failure um, control and conduct your movement from that time forward. And that's not a good thing. I think one of the best things for me was getting, after I uh, finished college in speech and theater with a minor in music, I transferred out of zoology and went into the theater, mercifully, um, for all those patients I might have had. But I think when I, instead of going straight to New York from Indiana, I said, I want to go and get classical training and learn how to do theater like they do in England, for example, Uh, because you can go from stage to film. And I think the transition 
um, what you've learned in the theater will enhance what you can think on camera because, of course, it's a, a totally different medium. But I learned how to speak, move, react. I learned uh, so much script-wise and what I studied by going to school first to a conservatory and then moving into the theater. But that was the greatest lesson for me and one that I carried forward and it served me in in good stead my entire career. So, Deborah, my last question for you today is, what is the best thing about being a part of the Star Trek universe? <laughs> oh, I think that uh, it has had such a longevity and people uh, my age now watched it when they were much younger and uh, um, and it can continue on. It can evolve and, and change with the times. And it's also, as you pointed out, uh, the character um, in Voyager um, and the character, I should say, Hanik in, in uh, uh, Deep Space Nine, uh, it points out that there are parallels uh, in life and we're not all that different. And they can carry a story forward that has a resonance today and relevance uh, from back then. And I think that makes it very valuable. And I hope it continues. I'm sure that it will. Star Trek will, of course, go on and on forever. Yeah. And these days now, you're also doing a lot more convention appearances, right? I know, obviously, right now, with everything that's happened in the world, you're not. But you've been doing convention appearances also, mm -hmm. correct? Yes, a few of them I have. And I enjoy them very much. As a matter of fact, I, I uh, sat next to Nicole Tom, the last convention I did. And she is, uh, uh, we're cousins. And I didn't realize that she lives just blocks away from me. And she was on the nanny. Um, and so we got reacquainted. And it was so arbitrary and fortuitous. Oh, that's great to hear. And uh, have you enjoyed meeting all the fans? Oh, my goodness, yes. And so surprised that they remember. And as you're a, a devotee, obviously, of this uh, particular theme, uh, and they remind me of things and, and uh, uh, reliven memories uh, of, uh, of the work. And I'm so glad that I was a part of it and had a chance to do it. So, Deborah, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. It's been really uh, insightful to hear your thoughts on your Star Trek appearances and everything else. Uh, and thank you so much again for just your, your great work on the series. Oh, Matthew, thank you. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. I hope there's something in there that you can glean uh, from our conversation and uh, it'll be audio worthy. Uh, it totally is. Thank you so much. <laughs> You're welcome. You're very welcome. So that was our interview with Deborah May, which was a lot of fun. Now, despite my research, we didn't speak too much about too much of her previous work on dramas just because I wanted to prioritize a few other things in the time we had, but I hope I have another chance to pick her brain sometime and chat a lot more with her about her career. Regarding the script changes we mentioned about Favorite Son, indeed, that episode was originally intended to make Harry Kim an alien permanently, an idea that Garrett Wang liked very much. This would have also meant Garrett would have had to wear those spots permanently for the rest of the series. However, execs didn't like that idea, and it was changed back to being a one-off and ultimately having no bearing on the rest of the series. Likewise, the Deep Space Nine episode of Sanctuary also had a pretty major plot change to it as it was developed. Originally, the screens were going to be allowed to live and farm on Bajor, but that was later changed to be more of a downbeat ending. I think that ultimately made it a much more impactful episode anyway. Besides, I don't call the show Deep Sad Nine for nothing. So thank you for listening to this week's episode of Trek Untold, and if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show, and if you can, leave a review and rating. We'd appreciate it very much. You can also follow us on social media. Just look for Trek Untold on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'd love to hear from you. 
and let us know what you think about the show. If you'd like to support this podcast, check out patreon.com slash trekuntold to learn how you can keep our ship operating at full power. Once again, thank you to our sponsor, Triple Fiction Productions, and shout out to Scott Ray for setting up this interview. If you'd like to book this week's guest for a convention appearance or an autograph signing event or anything else, you can email Scott at scottray67 at aol.com. This has been Trek Untold. I'm Matthew Kaplowitz, and until next time, fortune favors the bold. <laughs>